Thank you so much, you guys. Just amazing. How's everybody doing? Everybody doing well? Yeah, yeah. So don't be jealous, but I've been to two movies in the last seven days. Finding Dory. I know, right? And um, The Secret Life of Pets. So I've seen two cartoons this week. Apparently in my contract, I can only see G-rated movies as a pastor. So I'm pretty excited about that. I got a lot of laughs. Those were some fun movies to see. I don't know what my wife and girls drag me into half the time, but it's, it's what I do. Taking it for the team. Everybody doing well? I am Pastor Mark. One of the pastors on staff is also Pastor Dave and Pastor Doug, and it's really good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I've shared in the first two services last night, 9 o'clock this morning, that I've been a little fidgety all week because of our topic. Has anybody had a chance to read the verses for today? Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. It's on divorce. And, um, yeah, you know, it makes the speaker nervous. You know, you want to do that topic well. Make sense? So we are in Mark chapter 10. We finished chapter 9 last week. So turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read those verses. Um, and then we're going to jump in. Matter of fact, uh, is I think I saw Bruce Cook. Bruce, I had um, Doug Renault, one of our other elders, uh, pray. I'm going to read the verses and pray. Would you grab a mic from Daniel back there and pray for our services in a second? Um, Bruce Cook, one of our elders, thank you. Um, and Bruce, when you pray, just to pray for the, the topic, pray for this morning and to pray for what's going on in Nice, France, and, and the tragedy there. And Yeah? Okay, let me, let me read the verses uh, first. Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And getting up, Jesus, or he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, we've seen this more than once, and began to question Jesus whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not that man, the husband, separate. And then in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she, the woman herself, divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Bruce, would you uh, come up and open us up in prayer, please? Thank you. join you down here. Pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you now, Lord, and we just thank you so much for this time that we can gather together as a family, Lord, of your, your children, Lord. Father, we ask you now that, that you would just bless this service, Lord, and, and your word, Father. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, that your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. We can trust you for all things, Lord. Lord, we we pray for the for the people in France, Lord, and the, just the 
just the terrible things that are happening in, in this world, Lord. We know that you are king, Lord, and we know that one day that you're coming back soon, Lord, and then you will make everything right, Lord. We just pray for that return, Lord. We thank you for your word today, Lord, and I just ask that you would just anoint Pastor Mark's words, Lord, and that we would receive them with open hearts and open minds. And we ask this all for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So I want to give a serious disclaimer, if you will, because of our topic of conversation this morning, all right? Um, I love you. The Lord loves you. And I'm so grateful that we as a church love one another. We do it well here. So grateful. Marriage and especially divorce can be a very sensitive subject, right? My parents divorced. I was a few months old. I've had a few of my siblings go through divorce. My hope and prayer here today for us is that nobody experiences guilt or shame, nor directs guilt or shame at others. The Lord loves us. The Lord accepts us and redeems us in all of our faults and in all of our foibles, including divorce. Praise be to our God. Amen? Okay? Let's talk generally about marriage and about divorce. What do we know about marriage? Interestingly enough, the Bible begins and ends with marriage. Did you know that? You find it in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Revelation 22. Interesting. Marriage was designed by our Lord. We must never lose sight that the Lord is the one who invented marriage, understands the ins and the outs of marriage, established the boundaries for a healthy or an unhealthy marriage. So we must look to Him and we must look to His Word. It is a sacred covenant and union of one man and one woman formed when the two swear before God an oath of lifelong loyalty and love. The idea of marriage was ordained by God in His instruction to Adam that a man should leave his father and mother and he and his wife shall become one flesh. God instituted this first marriage in the Garden of Eden. Marriage is more than just a ceremony. There are many passages uh, showing that marriage is based on a covenant or an oath sworn before the Almighty God. Any violation of that covenant can invite God's judgment. There are many purposes of marriage. Some are this. One purpose of marriage is God's glory, companionship, procreation, and of course physical intimacy. Some of the problems we see in marriage are sexual sins, people being unequally yoked, and biblical submission to the roles that God has for men and women in, in, a, in a relationship, in a marriage relationship. May our marriages indeed bring glory to our God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, it says, Whether then you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, church, do all of it to the glory of our God. May our marriages bring glory to our Father. Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 5 that the marriage relationship is to be patterned after that of Christ 
and the church. And we know this analogy that Christ is considered the bridegroom and we are considered the bride. Turn to Ephesians 5. Before, um, yeah, turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to read some verses. Every couple that I um, do counseling with before they get married, we spend a lot of time in Ephesians 5. It's just such a great chunk of verses for us to understand our roles in marriage. It says in verse 21, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject, as we are subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. If we stop there, that can twist some people, but I love verse 25. Everything hinges on verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and died for her. That's what it means, gave himself up for her. I ask every couple, if your man treated you in such a way that he would die for you, would you submit to that kind of leadership? Every woman says yes. Everyone. That's what God asks of us. Verse 26, So that he might sanctify the bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes men, nourishes and cherishes. Those are key words for men towards their wives, to nourish and cherish it, just as Christ nourishes and cherishes us, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave uh, his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is awesome, it's great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, men, as we nourish and cherish our wives. They, in return, show us respect, which is what we desire as well. It's a beautiful thing when it's done the way God designed, designed it to be. What do we know about divorce? Many of us already know that around 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce. 41% of first marriages end in divorce. So we undo that and we're going to do better, right? So we have a second marriage, but 60% of those end in divorce. So we undo that and we're going to do it again. And you know that 73% of third marriages end in divorce. Stick with the first one. Right? The odds are in your favor. More divorce facts. In the United States, wow, there's one divorce every 36 seconds. Since we've been meeting at 11 o'clock this morning, there's been about 80 divorces, if more, 70 to 80 divorces since we gathered at 11 o'clock this morning. It's 11.37. That's 100 divorces per hour. By the time we get done with our service at 12.10, over 100 couples will have been divorced. That's nearly 2,400 divorces per day. 2,400. 
16,800 divorces per week, just under 1 million divorces per year, 876,000 divorces per year. I jokingly wrote this down. I wonder how things would look if we paid divorce attorneys more if the couples actually stayed together. The average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. I heard this years ago. There's something I don't even know. I, the seven-year itch or something like that. Who's heard of that? The seven-year itch, right? That somewhere around that seven-year mark in marriages, things just kind of do, do, do funky stuff happens, right? I don't know why, but that's what it's called. Well, that happened to my wife and I, right? Almost like to the day, like seven years. Suddenly we wake up and it's like, I don't think I like you and I'm pretty sure you don't like me. Right? So what did I do? Well, I sat her down. I created a spreadsheet and told her all the things that she needed to fix. <laughs> and things have been incredible ever since, man. She's, she's amazing that way. It might not be entirely true, but she's not here to defend herself. But we got our act together, my wife and I did, and we worked through that. Next, year, next month will be 28 years. I praise the Lord for her every day. Yeah, thanks. The average age for a first divorce is 30 years old. That's about what we were. Mel Gibson and his ex-wife Robin Gibson, their divorce in 2009 is considered to be the largest celebrity divorce settlement when Mel Gibson paid Robin Gibson $425 bucks. And I think, they do, I think they did it wrong. They could have paid me $100 million, kept $325 million for themselves, and me and God would have fixed that marriage, right? So I think that would have been a perfect plan. Mel should have called me first. Statistics on the likelihood of divorce. If your parents are happily married, your risk of divorce decreases by 14%. Makes sense, right? We model that for our children. People who wait to marry until they're over the age of 25 are 24% less likely to get divorced. Well, I was 23 and my wife was 24, so that, that works against us. But I make some of it up. If you attended college, your risk of divorce decreases by 13%, so I get half of it back. Pretty excited about that. Check this out. This is startling to a lot of people. Living together prior to getting married increases the chance of getting divorced by as much as 40%. The very reason people claim they want to live together so they can see if it's going to work actually works against their marriage. Interesting. I think that's fascinating. 2008 voter data shows that red states, those that tend to vote Republican, have higher divorce rates than blue states, those that tend to vote Democrat. Barna Research Group measured divorce stats by religion. They found that 29% of Baptists are divorced, the highest for any U.S. religious group, while only 21% of the religious group called atheists and agnostics were divorced the lowest, only 21%. Shouldn't be that way, right? Children's statistics with divorce, 43% of children growing up in America today are being raised without their fathers. I was one of them. 28% of children living with a divorced parent live in a household with an income below the poverty line. It's a lot of ministry in those last two statistics, yeah? A lot of ministry to be done. Here's our outline for our verses this morning in Mark chapter 10. 
We're going to spend a little time getting off the divorce. I just want to talk about some cool things in verse 1 about Jesus, the teacher. Now we're going to jump back into the whole divorce thing in verses 2 through 9 and again in 10 through 12, right? So the teacher, the testing, and the tutor. Let's read Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea. So just kind of lock that in your mind. The region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Those two things, Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gather. So Jesus goes to Judea and beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan is an area called Perea. Anyway, so uh, Judea beyond the Jordan. Crowds gather around Jesus and according to his custom, his habit, he once more began to teach them. Turn back to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Mark 3, 7 and 8. When Jesus was uh, going around Galilee, in the Sea of Galilee, that's where we're at. In chapter 10, Jesus is south of Galilee. But right now in chapter 3, Jesus withdrew to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, but also from Judea. That's the Judea I told you to pay attention to in Mark 10, verse 1. Also from Judea, then he mentions Jerusalem, Edomia, and beyond the Jordan. So there we are, Judea and beyond the Jordan. So those areas are uh, next to each other, south of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, go back to Mark 10.1. So we see from Mark chapter 3 that those from Judea and beyond the Jordan came to see and hear Jesus teach while he was in Galilee. That's Mark chapter 3. And here, in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, we see Jesus leave that area, Galilee, Capernaum, and come down to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, which is right next to it, is is Perea. That distance between Galilee and Judea is about 85 miles. And those back in chapter 3 traveled that distance by foot to hear Jesus. Why? Why in verse 10 is Jesus here? Let's read that again. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and the Jordan, 85 miles, and the crowds gathered around him and again, and according to his custom, he begins to teach. It's what Jesus does. We've seen it so many times through the book of Mark that Jesus teaches. It's according to his custom, verse 1 says. And crowds gathered around him again. Look where it says, crowds gathered around him again. And then it says, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. That, those words, once more, and the word again right above it is the same Greek word, palin, P-A-L-I-N. So in other words, crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, his habit, he again began to teach. People traveled in Mark 3 nearly 85 miles from Judea up to Galilee to be taught by Jesus. And now Jesus travels by foot 85 miles down to Judea from Galilee in order to teach. Okay, what's the takeaway? Here's the takeaway. As followers or disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us be encouraged and clear about a few things that this verse shows us. First thing, Jesus goes out of his way in order to teach us. Jesus went 85 miles on foot to teach a people group. Jesus goes out of his way to teach us. 
Do we, like they did in verse 1 here, chapter 10, do we gather around Him when He does? Do we gather? When Jesus goes out of His way to teach us, do we gather? The second thing is, do we, like they did back in Mark chapter 3, do we go out of our way to be taught by Jesus? Both things are happening here. The people went out of their way in Mark chapter 3, 85 miles to be taught by their Lord, and Jesus in chapter 10 goes out of His way to, to teach a people group. And I think it's fun. It should be fun for us. If God is always, if Jesus is always going out of His way to teach us, and if we're always going out of our way to be taught by Him, shouldn't we be able to come to church on a Sunday morning and say, Deborah, what's God teaching you? I know He's going out of His way to teach you something. Are you going out of your way to be taught by Him? Great. What's He teaching you? Manny, What's God teaching you? I know He's going out of His way to teach you something. I'm sure you're going out of your way to be taught by Him, right? So what's God teaching you? Wouldn't that be fun to ask each other that? Leslie, what's God teaching you? I know He's gone out of His way to teach you something, and I'm sure you're going out of your way to be taught by Him. wonder what He's teaching you. We should be able to ask that question of one another. What is God teaching you? Right? If we don't have an answer to that question when I just did that, we need to assess what's wrong. We can't say, this is what God's teaching me, man. Something's wrong. And so we should ask ourselves, what's wrong? Because what verse 1 is telling us in Mark chapter 10 is that Jesus teaches again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Mark's making that point. He could have just said the crowds gathered and Jesus taught. It says, no, the crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, which means again, they once more begin, or again he began to teach. The mark of true discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ is never growing weary of being taught. We must never grow weary of being taught. It's what Jesus does. He teaches. He goes out of His way to teach. And we need to go out of our way to be taught. Pray. Pray for the desire and the discipline to be taught. When Jesus goes out of His way to teach, do we gather or do we flee? Are we currently going out of our way in order to be taught by our Lord? And what does that look like? Are you going out of your way in some capacity to be taught by our Lord? There's a lot going on in this church that you can plug into. We have home Bible fellowships led by some great people. Home groups. We have weekly men's groups. We have weekly women's groups. We have monthly men's uh, events going on and monthly women's events going on. We do three semesters of Rock University. Right now the prayer class is going on at 9 o'clock. A business by the book is going on at 9 o'clock. So three semesters, two classes, one at 9 and one at 11. We do that three times a year. We have a men's breakfast every Wednesday morning. The teaching's incredible. I do the teaching. It's okay. We have a men's retreat coming up in September. I'm going. I'm going to the men's retreat. I'm going to go out of my way to be taught, to learn. I'm going to ask you a really loaded question. I'm going to ask you a really loaded question. Is your Jesus worth walking 85 miles for to be taught? Is our Jesus, is your Jesus worth walking 85 miles 
That's what's going on here. Jesus goes out of his way. We don't have to go 85 miles. We maybe have to drive our car to a nice comfy home, hang out, do some fellowship, be taught by some of our great people that teach some of the things that are going on, drive to church, not 85 miles on foot. Is our Jesus worthy of an 85-mile walk? Gosh, I hope so. Our second stanza, the testing, verses 2 through 9. Verse 2, some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. And the two shall become one, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Divorce, whether it is uh, justified or not, is a tragedy that fractures the lives of men, women, children, and perhaps even our witness for Christ to a lost world. Nevertheless, thankfully, the Gospels are filled with examples of how Jesus dealt with persons who were struggling with guilt and failure. Our God is so good. Where guilt and sin were involved, Jesus did not minimize that. But in every case, He acted with redemption. His goal was to help them to begin anew through God's grace and strength. To help them off, get off to a fresh start through God's grace and through God's strength. And a really good verse is, uh, for this is Philippians 3, 12, 13, and 14, where it says, Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect or mature, but I press on in my Christian walk so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of maturity yet, but one thing I do... Forget what lies behind and I reach forward or I press on or I strain to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ. I heard this years ago that the enemy likes to remind us of our past, but God wants us to remember our future. And the enemy just likes to mire us in our past and all those things and God sets us free from all that. It's the work that he does. It's beautiful. By now, going through the first nine books or chapters of the book of Mark, we've come to realize that oftentimes Jesus is asked questions by people with impure motives, right? And that's what's going on here in chapter 10. And perhaps at times we, uh, the same thing happens to us and we cannot articulate or uh, defend or give a good explanation for what God's doing in our lives or why we believe something. And some people ask us questions to trap us, if we will, or to test us. And we, maybe we fail in that regard, but it doesn't make us wrong, does it? Because keep this in mind. Whenever Jesus was asked a question to test him and to trap him, every time he could give a great defense or a great explanation, but almost every time it was with little to no progress, wasn't it? Because great and brilliant arguments can never penetrate a hardened heart. Oftentimes, we need to do less proclaiming to others and more praying for them. 
so that their hearts will soften to receive the gospel message. This area of Judea and uh, Perea was ruled by somebody named Herod Antipas, which you may remember from Mark 6 and John the Baptist. And this might explain why the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus by asking a question about divorce. If you recall, John the Baptist had been beheaded because he spoke against Herod's adulterous relationship or marriage to Herodias, who happened to be his brother's wife. Herod Philip, and we read about that in Mark chapter 6. But there was more than politics involved in their trick question here in Mark chapter 10. Divorce was a controversial subject among the rabbis at the time. And no matter what answer Jesus gave, He was going to offend one party or the other. And that would give them the opportunity perhaps to arrest Him. Divorce was already permitted in the law. So in reality, their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, was not really their question. The discussion was concerned, rather, with the legal grounds for a man to divorce his wife. That's really what they're asking. Check out Deuteronomy 24.1. This is what they're talking about. Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament... I think it's the fifth book, right? Genesis, Exodus, something like that. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24.1. And I'll point out the key word here when we read it and why there was two camps that developed over this word. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her... That's the key word, this word indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and off she goes. It is here that two entirely different positions were held. One by the school of Rabbi Hillel and one by the school of Rabbi Shammai. The school of Rabbi Hillel, get this church, allowed the husband to divorce his wife for any trivial matter whatsoever, even the burning of his food. Thank the Lord for all the nice restaurants out there that are saving marriages. Right? The school of Rabbi Shammai insisted that adultery was the only sufficient cause for divorce. So those are the two camps. And so no matter how Jesus answered, He was going to offend one side or the other. The most scripturally consistent interpretation would seem to be that if upon marriage a husband found that his wife had been sexually active during the engagement period or even before, then he could divorce her. Makes sense. Some things to note about Bible times. It was the man who divorced the wife. Women did not have this right in Israel. The official bill of divorcement was provided so that the woman's status to remarry could be established again. In reality, the law of Moses did not give adultery as grounds for divorce. What did it give for adultery? Stone them to death. That's what the law of Moses gave for adultery. In Israel, the adulterer and the adulteress were actually stoned to death. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 22 or Leviticus 20 if you want. But turn to John 8. Turn to John 8, verses 1 through 11. And we see that law come into effect during Jesus' time in this great story of an adulterous woman. 
Mark 8, verse 1. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple, of course, to teach. And the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center, and they set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And of course they were saying this, testing him so they might have grounds for accusing him. And Jesus starts writing with his finger. People think that what he was writing is all the sins of those accusing her. They persisted, and he, and he says to them in verse 7, He who was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What a beautiful, redeeming thing by our Lord. It's beautiful. Jesus explained that Moses gave the divorce law because of the sinfulness or the hardness of the human heart. One commentary says this, None must put away their wives, but such as are willing to own that their hearts were so hard as to even need this permission. I love that. The reality is this. In any marriage, wouldn't you agree, our hearts must be soft. For God to do anything, we cannot have hardened hearts. We have to have soft hearts. And it was out of the hardness of their hearts that Moses permitted divorce. The demands of discipleship should cause us to aim to do the will of God, not look for concessions instead. Jesus' concern is with what God wills rather than with what the law allows. What does God will, not does what, what does the law allow? I don't think, I didn't mention this in the first two services, I don't think it's illegal to have an affair. It's not smart, right? I don't think they throw you to jail. I don't think there's a, a fine to pay, right? So it's legal, but it's not wise. The law was created in order to protect the wife, to keep the husband from impulsively divorcing her, divorcing her and uh, abusing her like an unwanted piece of furniture, for crying out loud. Without a bill of divorcement, a woman could easily become a social outcast. No man would want to marry her and she would be left defenseless and destitute. God is so good. By giving this commandment to Israel, God was not putting His approval on divorce or even encouraging it. Rather, He was seeking to restrain it and make it more difficult for men to dismiss their wives. He put significant or sufficient regulations around divorce so that the wives would not become victims to their husbands' whims. And if any of us are women that are married to men, we know that husbands have whims. We're kind of silly that way, aren't we? So this was to protect women from their husbands' whims and becoming victims. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Look in verses 6 through 9. He says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, and they become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. The Lord takes them back beyond Moses to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, to the original creation. After all, in the beginning, it was God who established marriage and He has the right to make the rules around it. Make sense? And then we see the climax in verse 9 where it says, what God has joined together, let not that man separate. It's the man in the relationship, not a lawyer, not any other man. It's that man, the husband. While the spiritual element is vitally important in our marriage, 
The emphasis here is that marriage is a physical union. The two, it says, became one flesh, not one spirit. The two became one flesh, not one spirit. And since marriage is a physical union, only a physical cause can break a marriage, is essentially what that means. And so either death or adultery. Let's look at the first one, death, Romans 7, 1 through 3. Paul writes, Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as they're alive. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if her husband dies, she's released. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And then the other one, adultery or fornication or immorality. Matthew 19.9 says, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And lastly, our last couple of verses, Mark 10, verses 10 through 12. In the house, the disciples question him about this. I would too. What does this all mean? And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. But then he includes the woman. And this is a first. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. What do you mean? Women have rights too? (laughs) That's what he's saying. And I just love it here in verse 10. We see this posture, this habit of being a disciple as they are with the teacher and they're asking him questions. And so when Jesus goes out of his way to teach us and we go out of our way to be taught by him and he comes alongside us and he tutors us and we get to ask him questions and we get to ask one another questions and we continue to grow and mature in our faith and in our knowledge of Holy Scripture. And so I just love that little verse 10 where he goes away and he becomes their tutor through these very difficult truths. And as I pointed out in verse 12, note, take note that Jesus included the women in his warning, which certainly elevated their status in society and gave them equality of responsibility with men. A divorce, we know this, a divorce may be legal according to our laws and yet not be right in the eyes of God. The effect of Jesus' teaching is to condemn divorce as contrary to God's will and to set forth the highest standards of marriage for us, His disciples. We should expect no less, right? Christians of all eras have fallen short, just as the ancient Jews did. And there's no reason to think that the same provision for human imperfection that existed back in Moses' day does not still exist today. God is so gracious to us. God can and God does forgive divorce along with all the other stuff that is wrong in our lives. Can I get an amen? Divorce may sometimes be the lesser of two evils, but it is never pleasing to God or good in and of itself. I'm done. I hope you heard my heart on this very sensitive subject. I love you. The Lord loves you. I'm going to pray as the worship um, team works its way up. And then when they're done, our prayer team is available over here to my left in the corner if you need prayer for anything. Thank you so much for letting me do that with you guys. Let's pray. God, you're so good. In all of our brokenness and faults and foibles, you continue to love us. You continue to be faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to You. Lord, to continue to change us from the inside out. Lord, 
thank you for going out of your way to teach us. Give us strength, Lord, to go out of our way to be taught by you. Lord, thank you for extending your arms of love to everybody in this church. We feel it. We see it. We know it. You're too good to us, Lord. It's incredible. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said...